Um, today we're going to finish up our series called GOAT, uh, which is a very common acronym that stands for the greatest of all time. Um, it was first used by Muhammad Ali um, because he considered himself, and many other people still do, the greatest of all time. Humility was maybe an issue. Uh, confidence was never his, his thing. Uh, he never lacked any confidence, that's for sure. Um, but the question we're kind of asking is, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to live a great life? Because I think all of us, to some extent, would like to say that we lived great lives or we did great things. And our culture, you know, they tell us a lot of different ways that we can be great. And, and one thing that's maybe not the best thing and maybe can kind of tip us off that maybe our culture doesn't have this quite figured out is that the greatness our culture points us to tends to be a bit of a moving target. What makes you great today doesn't make you great tomorrow. And, and in many cases, what made you great, what got you a crowd 20 years ago, would make you the villain of our society today. So there's many ways that this can change all the time. And so maybe since we're Christians, and many, or many of us are Christians, and at least since we're in church, maybe we should ask, what's God's definition of greatness? And so that's what we want to try to figure out. Um, I remember the first time I was ever good at something. You know, something that... that got me a little bit of admiration and a little bit of, of maybe even envy from other people. Um, in elementary school, uh, athletics was not always my thing. I'm, um, I tried basketball the first time we could do it in fifth grade. We could do like the peewee basketball league. And boy, was that awful. I was the shortest kid in my class. I was a little chubby. I was slow. I was uncoordinated. And so it just went really, really not good for me. It didn't get a lot of playing time. Did a lot of running in, in practice, a whole lot. Didn't really do any good for me. And so I just thought, I'm not an athlete. I'm not going to do any sports, whatever. I'm getting out of that. And then seventh grade, I began a growth spurt that lasted all the way until I got to eighth grade. And I entered eighth grade this height. I have not grown a centimeter since eighth grade. In fact, I think I've reduced a little bit, but that's okay. It happens to the best of us. And so, but the, the other thing that was interesting is I didn't gain a pound from like sixth grade to eighth grade. I gained a, like a foot and a half of height, but not, a, not an ounce. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe, maybe now that I'm not the short kid, maybe basketball would be my thing. So I tried out for basketball again. Nope, still not my thing. No amount of height in the world would make me good at basketball. I mean, I could, I could be looking down at the rim and I'd still be horrible. I am, I'm confident. Um, and so at the end of the year, I thought, maybe I'll try track. And we were just a small school. We didn't have any way to practice really at, at the school. So we'd, he'd have us run. Our coach would have us run. And then when we got to track meets, it was basically, you're going to run whatever I tell you to. And like, he just rotated everybody through everything. So the last meet of the year, he, he's like, hey, Bliss, you're going to run hurdles. And I said, why? He's like, it's your turn. That's just that's what and I was like oh no I don't want to do this and somehow miraculously I ended up qualifying for the state track meet <laughs> I had no idea how I was not prepared and so it was like voila I'm an athlete and that was like whoa I'd never had anything that was where I was obviously good at anything in my life and so all of a sudden here I am people people were like oh you went to state and track that's really awesome um turns out it didn't take a lot of skill apparently to make it past our sectional but that's okay I still made it to state and but but that little bit of people being like whoa and getting your picture in the yearbook and stuff like that I was hooked People thinking I was good. I'd never heard Anthony Bliss and success in the same sentence before. And that was an intoxicating feeling. And so I go to high school thinking, I'm an athlete. I'm going to do track. And this is what I, I started living my whole life to was to be good at track and to try to be a good hurdler. Every, every 
Part of my high school year, each year, was about track. I started going to the weight room to get stronger, to be faster at track. I started running cross country so that I would be in shape during the off-season for track. I was out in the middle of the winter in the snow on the track running to stay in shape. Everything was about being good and succeeding so that people would know that I was good. My entire identity was swallowed up in being an athlete, being a hurdler. And there was, again, never a time in my life where there was something that so clearly gave me glory, where there was something that was so clearly like, that was my thing, and that's what people thought of when they heard my name, and I loved it. And that feeling of people telling you that you're good at something, admiring you, looking at you, that, it, it really is kind of addictive, and people can really get hung up on that. I mean, this is why some people get stuck perpetually reliving those high school glory days, which I understand the irony of the fact that I just did that a little bit. But, but that's, there's some people, that's, that's the only stories they have are when they did football, when they did uh, baseball or basketball in high school, and their team was the last team that went to regionals or won regionals, and they keep telling those stories over and over again, always talking about how good they used to be, because as often happens, talent doesn't stick with us forever, and especially in athletics, and that was the thing that made them feel important, or maybe even the first thing that made them feel valuable as a human being, and they can't get over it, and so they retell the same stories, taking that, those, that their past, and they're just trying to wring every ounce of glory and, and admiration and maybe even fame that they can get out of that. And fame might seem like a strong word, but fame doesn't have to mean that everybody in the country knows your name. I mean, we, being from small towns, a lot of us, we understand that there are small town heroes, okay? There are people that, okay, who's our Olympian in New Berlin? Yeah, Lance, right? Everybody knows Lance. Like, that's a big deal. Like, again, the average American has no idea who Lance Brooks is, but man, a lot of us do, okay? And so, like, there's, there's ways that you can be famous in your own little corner of the world, in your school, in your workplace. You can be the guy that people know for this, or the woman people know as being an awesome leader. You can be uh, famous in your little corner. So I, I don't use the term fame to mean, like, worldwide fame, but, but when you can get into a situation where enough people are singing your praises where you got enough maybe online followers or enough people paying attention to you, then you must be great. You must be doing something to merit them giving your attention. And so one of the ways that we interpret greatness is oftentimes just by the crowd we have following us, the, peop the number of people that we have looking at us and applauding us for whatever it is that we do. And I think social media has made this desire to get glory for ourselves, or maybe little bits of fame for ourselves, social media has made that more tempting than ever before. And more people live their lives with this goal to have people like their, like their pics, you know, subscribe or follow or whatever it might be. More people are doing that stuff. And what's interesting about it, and I think what even the social media companies are starting to realize how unhealthy it is, is because what's so addictive about social media is that you have a tangible number of your greatness. You posted that picture of yourself, look how many likes I got. You can count, you can see how many people gave you the thumbs up or the ha 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 on your funny joke. You can see your follower count grow. It's a measurable number that tells you how great you are. It's no surprise, by the way, that Facebook is testing removing like count on both Instagram and Facebook because it's messing with us. Because we can't, we're hooked on that number. Why? It's glory. 
it's glory, and I want all the glory. I want to know how many people love me, how many people think I'm great, how many people think I'm funny. We want to know that stuff. It's addictive. And so we start to post whatever's going to get us the most of those things, whether it's things that are funny, inspirational quotes, stories of our past, funny pictures of our kids, sometimes inappropriate stuff. I follow some of you on Facebook. No hints there, no names. But, you know, sometimes we post things, you know, whatever it's going to be that people like, that people think, uh, what we think people will like, and is what's going to get us a few extra clicks, a few extra follows, a few extra friends. And, and we post pictures of precisely curated, ed- ed- uh, edited moments of our lives so that people look at us and go, what a perfect life you have. It's like, well, no, I just scooted all the junk behind the camera before I took the picture. It's like, my life's not perfect, but you don't need to know that. And as long as you don't come to my house, you'll never know. Like, and so we have this weird thing where we will use anything from our lives and even abuse things from our lives if it will get us clicks and likes. Um, we take moments with our kids. I've even seen people who've gotten a following by posting their bad moments because people come along and they say, no, you're great. No, you're awesome. Don't be down on yourself like that. I'm here for you. And they post the, the painful things just to see how many people show up to comfort them. And so we will post anything that we think might get us a little extra glory, a little extra like. And on and on I could go because the examples of the ways that we will do this are, are endless, are limitless. And this pursuit of glory, this, this hunger for praise, it's nothing new. Yes, I think social media has made it more common for us to be kind of hooked on this, but it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Humanity's been hooked on this stuff for as long as they could be. It's so common, though, in our world now that we not only accept it, but we, we praise it. We're glad when we see people getting some glory online. We think it's probably good for them, and good for them they're doing this, and good for them that they're having some following, and and we accept it and encourage this way of living. But what if glory and fame and applause, what what if those things don't mean that you're actually living a great life? What if those things don't indicate that your life is is top tier, that you're running on all cylinders? What if that is not the best indicator of a great life? And so I want to explore this idea, and I want to look at a guy from the New Testament that most Christians have heard of. He was incredibly popular in his time, and it was a guy by the name of John the Baptizer. If you want to grab a Bible, we'll be in John chapter 3. Okay, a couple things about John. One, um, you probably heard him called John the Baptist. I prefer to say John the Baptizer because denominations were a thing. He didn't go to, like, the first Baptist church in Jerusalem or anything like that. He was called John the Baptizer because he baptized people, um, but John, and so, I, you know, I'll probably say John the Baptist every now and then out of habit, but uh, John the Baptizer might be more accurate in our day and age, and secondly, we're going to be in the book of John, but this book of John was not written by the John we're going to be talking about in our story. John was just as common of a first name in the first century as John is today, so there was lots of Johns, and so this John that wrote this book was a disciple of Jesus, but John the Baptizer was not a disciple of Jesus, I mean, in a sense, not the kind that followed him around every single day. In fact, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others. And John had a unique unique role among the Old Testament prophets in that he was the last prophet to be on the scene before the Messiah came, before the Savior of Israel showed up. So he was kind of the opening act for Jesus, if you want to think of it that way. And so John, his goal was to kind of roll out the red carpet for Jesus, to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus. And John did that by highlighting the sinfulness of people and by pointing them to repenting 
and being baptized. And for whatever reason, John had a, a lot of success by telling people how awful they were. Because people showed up in droves. People showed up by the thousands to be baptized by John and his disciples, to hear his message saying, repent, be baptized, you evil vipers. Like he called people names and they're still like, yeah, I'm in. I don't know what kind of preaching he was doing, but nice job, John. Um, and so he had this tremendous success of people coming from all over Israel to hear him and to see him, right? And so in that corner of the world at that time, John was just about as famous as anybody could be. And his fame was thriving until Jesus showed up. And that's where everything starts to change for John, and that's where our story is going to pick up. John 3, 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and remained there with them, and he was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet but been put in prison. That's something that happens later. It says, Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So, basically, a guy came and said, Okay, we've got all these other ceremonial washings. Why do I got to be baptized too? And so, as they're having this discussion, the disciples start paying attention. And it says, And they, the disciples of John, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Meaning, we were like the hottest act on the scene a week or two ago, and then this Jesus guy shows up, and now our crowds are getting thin, and everybody's going to Jesus. And they start to do what I think most of us do when we start to have a thing that we're famous for or known for start to trickle away, and we lose the audience. They kind of panicked. Maybe they got a little jealous. And, but we got to remember here that John was the opening act. And they start to panic, well, who are we going to be if we're not the main attraction anymore? What are we going to be if we don't have the crowds anymore? And they start to fear losing that notoriety, that fame, that applause. And that can be incredibly terrifying and overwhelming, especially for people who, that whatever it was that got them a crowd or an audience or whatever, that thing, when it starts to go away, you start to think, do I have anything left? Is there anything else in me of value? Do I matter beyond this thing? And if nobody cares that I'm doing it, what am I going to do with my life? And it starts to be incredibly scary. Again, I think this is why people get stuck reliving the glory days. Because they're worried that they don't have anything left in their present life. And so they're pointing everybody back to say, see, I'm, I'm valuable. I'm worth it. I, I matter. I'm, I, I have something to contribute. I, I did something that, that was valuable at one point in time. I think... One of the most obvious reactions to people who feel like they're losing that thing that they're noteworthy of is, comes in, in Hollywood. See, people in Hollywood tend to be famous for two things. Their acting ability and their looks. You know, we all think Hollywood, people from Hollywood are the most beautiful people in the world. And typically, acting ability doesn't fade. But we all know that looks fade. Age just does that, okay? Some, one minute you have hair, and then you turn 22, and it's gone. Like, that's just kind of how life tends to work. Wrinkles happen, things happen, life happens, kids happen, and they kind of just make you kind of steal some of that stuff. Let me say it that way, okay? And what you see a lot of times is people in Hollywood who feel as if their looks are fading, the age might be making them look a bit older, and so they just go in for a little nip-tuck. 
And at first, sometimes it's not that bad and it's not that noticeable, but they're worried. Again, this thing that made me famous, what if I lose this? What if I lose my beauty, my, my, my good looks? What's going to happen to me? And so the panic leads them to go under the knife again and again and again, and before you know it, they look like they're driving 200 miles an hour in a car with no windshield, you know? And it's like, too much, man. There's something happened. Your face is like, glued back and it's like oh man and you look at that and you think what happened to them they used to be so attractive why did they do that to themselves because they were panicking that they were losing the thing that made them valuable the thing that got them an audience the thing that got them praise the thing that got them written about in magazine articles they were worried of losing that and that's what a lot of us do when we start losing the thing that got us the glory we panic because we don't know what to do or if we're even valuable outside of having glory but John the baptizer's story shows us something that is just so obviously true, and we know it's true for everybody else, but when it happens to us, we, we forget and we start to, to freak out. Nobody prepares for it. And it's this, that all fame is temporary. No matter what you got fame for, it's temporary. And even if you end up being famous to your dying breath, in a couple hundred years, no one's going to know your name. Like, I wonder how many people are still going to be talking about Elvis in 400 years. Like, I know he's been gone a while, and his fame has outlived his, his lifetime, but how long can that go on before people, before we have so much music history and so much access to different types of music that people forget about the Beatles? I mean, I just can't help but believe it's going to happen eventually. And so fame is temporary. No matter how good you are, how long you had fame, no matter what it is that got you a crowd, it is always going to be temporary. And therefore, investing your entire life's worth of energy into getting more fame and prolonging your fame, it is a worthless endeavor. It's like trying to fill a bucket with a hole in it. I mean, you might make headway every now and then, but eventually it's going to drain out. There's just no way around it. All fame is temporary. And what's important to notice in the story is that even though John's disciples are kind of freaking out, oh no, everybody's going to Jesus, what are we going to do? John's never freaking out. John's totally okay with it. He knows that his purpose was not to have glory and make a name for himself. He knows that he's there for more than that. That's why he says in John 3.27, John answered them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, meaning no matter how hard you try, you can't build up more fame than what God's going to give you in a moment. If God allowed you to get a crowd for a moment, it wasn't for your own glory, and you can't extend that moment no matter how hard you try. It says, you, whoops, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's like, you guys heard me say, I'm the opening act, not the main event. You guys heard me say that. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So I love John's answer here. I'm not the main attraction. He says, if, this is, if we're talking, and this is a wedding, this situation where we're a wedding, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. The best man doesn't get to stand center stage. People don't show up to see the best man. And I've always had that mindset that I was the best man. The job of the best man is not to steal all the attention. The job of the best man is to point everybody to the groom and make sure that everything goes the way the groom wants it to go. And John, even in his popularity, 
knew his place was not to feed off of that. That the popularity and the fame was not something that indicated his greatness. His job was not to be over-the-top famous and, and great in that way. His job was always to point to Jesus. And in fact, when John lost his crowd, that just meant he succeeded. That he did a good job of saying, Jesus is greater than I am. And so as humans, it is inevitable that we're going to have popularity at certain times. You're going to do something that people at work give you a plaque for. You're going to do something. You're going to have a skill. Maybe it's singing in church or something. And people are going to love watching you sing in church, love hearing you sing at church. Maybe it's something at school. You're the kid that is always straight A's. Maybe you're going to be valedictorian. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But people are going to get a certain level of fame. But that doesn't, that isn't given to us so that we can sit there and go, yay me. Look at me, everybody. Don't you think I'm so great? That's such a small short-sighted goal because again your life is too small a thing for you to live it for your life your popularity no matter how hard you try will come and it will go but why not spend our lives pointing people like john did to the one whose glory and greatness is eternal why not spend our lives funneling people and their and people's attention and fame to jesus John says, he who comes from heaven is above all. And then I love what John says towards the end. It's such an, an, a striking and real thing that he's telling his disciples. What a, what a very real, honest thing to say for somebody who's had a huge crowd and is now losing their popularity. He, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. We think the other way around oftentimes. How can I increase myself? How can I be more famous, more, get more likes? I mean, I'll be, I've, I, I quit doing a lot of stuff on social media because you get it to where you check in the like counts. I posted something that I thought was funny, and how many people liked it? Because as my wife knows me, typically the audience is irrelevant. If I think it's funny, I'm going to say it. And if nobody else finds it funny, well, that's your problem. Like, you just don't have a good enough sense of humor. And so, if I post something on Facebook, though, it's like, there's still that little bit of like, okay, how many people are on my side? How many people were with me? How many people think I'm funny? How many people like this thing? How many people thought this picture of my kid was cute? Okay, I did one the other day. I shared it of poor Eleanor. It was two years ago when she first time she ate squash. And every bite was, you know. And there is something about a parent that that is just hilarious. It's, it's a little bit mean, but you know, I'm helping them try new foods. I'm helping them expand their palate so they can be nourished. But when they start gagging that stuff up, it's like, well, maybe one more bite not going to hurt. You know, it's like, get the phone out. We're going to record this and laugh about this. And so I shared that the other day, and like, I started getting notifications. People thought that was funny. And it's like, okay. And there's something about doing that stuff, that's posting something that's well-received or putting something out there for the world that is liked that does feel good. But again... Your time is short-lived. No matter how hard you try, you're going to get one, two, three rounds of applause, and it's going to fade. Why would we spend all of our time pointing to ourselves when we could spend our time pointing to one who is eternal, one who is better? Because even if you point people to yourself, what do you got to offer them? A temporary laugh? A life hack? A, a temporary break from from real life like really what do you have to offer them something temporary but what does jesus have to offer them eternal life grace and rescue from the their deepest sins healing of their souls forgiving of the forgiveness of their past change to their lives revival of their hearts he can give them things that you 
never can. So why would you waste your time pointing to yourself who has only small things to offer people when you could spend your time pointing to the one who truly is great, who truly does deserve all the fame, and the one who can truly change people's lives? Because if it's all about you, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to end up frustrated and scared. You're going you're to try to move the attention to yourself, and you're going to try to point people uh, to yourself, and it's going to be frustrating, and you're going to be tempted to post things that you shouldn't post and say things you shouldn't say and do things you shouldn't do because as the fear creeps in, you're going to be willing to do anything to keep the crowd, anything to keep the applause, anything that might make somebody look at you for five more minutes because you're scared of losing it, that thing that made you, made you known. But when you can start pointing people to Jesus, it is incredibly freeing. Because you don't have to keep it up anymore. Because you were just barely making it anyway. You're filling a bucket with a hole in it. And so you can, one, be freed from trying to point people to yourself and freaking out when your moment of fame ends because it was never about you anyway. But also it keeps you from abusing the good things in your life. How much we abuse the good things in our life because it gets us some glory? The one example I use all the time, man, you can just see crazy parents out there on the ball field or on the sidelines in the stands at any game, any meet, any whatever, and, and it's, they're ab- abusing their children. I don't say that in the uh, standard way, but they're abusing this gift that God has given them to f- siphon off glory from their kids. They're using their kids' athletic ability or singing skill or ability to play an instrument to look around and say, bask in my parental glory. Like, that's what that is. But imagine if you can just let go of that, and then you can just be a parent. You can be the parent your kid needs you to be that loves them and doesn't make them think that their love is based on their performance in some random area of life. And so whether it's humor or your kid's glory or your past or current athletic ability, whether it's job performance, your financial status, artistic ability, good looks, follower count, whatever it might be that you are known for, that can't be what you live for. It just can't because that's a well that's going to run dry real, real soon. So why not invest in something that is truly lasting, pointing people to the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus? Because you and I are temporary. Any glory we have is temporary. Any fame, any popularity is fleeting. But only the one who comes from heaven is above all and greater than all. And so when it comes to Christ, he must increase, which means we must decrease. And so to live a truly great life, it's not about building your name, it's about building his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this example of John the baptizer, that he, though he had great popularity, great fame, he was willing to to let go of that for the greater good. He was willing to, to pass that aside so that he could, again, point people to Jesus and the salvation that Jesus offered. John knew that his job was temporary, his fame was temporary, but that his job of pointing people to Jesus was was to never end as long as he had breath in his lungs. And I pray that we can be that way. And and that we can understand that even if we do get a moment of acclaim, a moment of of people telling us we're great or telling, telling us that they wish they were more like us, whatever it is that gets us a little bit of that fame, I pray that even in the moments when we have it, we can understand this isn't for me. If I have an audience, maybe it's just for a moment so that I can tell them about the goodness of Jesus. Because even at our best, we offer temporary things to people. And I just pray that you would ingrain that in our minds and in our hearts. We silly humans are, are 
caught up with trying to make ourselves valuable, with proving our worth to the world. But the fact that you sent your son to die for us, I think that already proves our worth. You've already told us how much we matter. You've already told us that you care deeply for us. You've told us how much you love us. And it was modeled for us. It was proven to us by the fact that your son came and and was willing to die on a cross for us. He gave everything so that we could know that we're loved, so that we could be saved and, and have a life that's not stuck on the temporary, but it's focused on the eternal. And so thank you, Father, for the hope we have in Jesus and the, the realistic know, uh, presence of just knowing that we're loved. I pray that we don't forget that. We don't go out into the world trying to ring glory and, and value into our lives out of other things that are good, but that's not what they're for. And I just pray that we can point people to Jesus. That when someone tells us we're good at something, maybe that's just an opportunity for us to show why Jesus is greater. And that whatever skill or thing we're doing that people like, it's just a, it's a momentary thing that's, that's going to fade away. So thank you again for the opportunity to live great lives. And let us always remember that greatness always is found in us pointing people to you. And us highlighting you. And us pointing to people what's eternal. And the salvation and rescue and hope that comes in Jesus alone. Let's not, let us not forget that. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.